Good morning. Good to see you here. Remember, uh, Tuesday evening begins our association of, of the reform studies that we will be doing. It starts at 6.30. It's here um, in the sanctuary. And it should go to about an hour, maybe a little bit longer. It's just, so we're going to see how the format works here. Um, if you ordered a book um, and uh, you ordered any time since early last week, right, they would have them. Um, we do have the books. They've arrived. They're, they're in the hall behind me back here. You can just kind of go back to the office. They're in a box there. And if you had not, if you're just thinking, okay, I want to do this and order a book, um, just go online, um, sign up for that. Um, we can, we'll order you a book, and, and you'll, you'll definitely, it may not come in a, a few days after we're done. But listen, you can jump into this any time because, it, you know, it's a, because you missed the first one doesn't mean you can't get in the second, third, and all the rest of them. Uh, so I do really want to encourage you with that, because that's going to be uh, starting uh, this Tuesday. And remember, it's going to be the fourth Tuesday, generally. I think there's a change later in um, November, December. But I think the fourth Tuesday of each month. Good morning. A uh, couple, couple youth-related announcements. This afternoon, our Area 56 group is going to meet kind of for the first time. And uh, if you if you have seen my Facebook feed, you've seen this thing called um, Slip and Slide Kickball. And uh, that's what we're going to be playing with the 5th and 6th graders. So if you have a student in 5th or 6th grade, you want to bring them here at 4 o'clock this afternoon. We'll meet right out here. Um, it's an absolute blast. If you want to show them what that looks like, get on my Facebook page. I have a recap video from when the youth had played. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we hope they can join us with that. Um, also, kind of related to that, the youth ministry is looking for people who want to help, right? Um, but very specifically want to help in, in, the, in the way of capturing some, some footage for us. So we do all these events, and, uh, you know, one thing I hate to do is ask Sam and Sarah to here grab a camera and get some video of what we're doing because we kind of want our, our staff to be interacting with the students and playing with them. Um, so if you're someone who says, hey, I, I don't have a camera, but I can use a camera, or I don't have a drone, but I could use a drone. Um, we have those things, and we'd love for you to come out and help us and, and just be the person who catches some of the great stuff that we do so that so we can kind of capture that stuff in memories and then also um, help promote and, and share to the church what we're doing. So if you're uh, interested in that, please contact me. You can send me an email, send me a text, or talk to me after church. Um, that'd be great. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. This is the day that the Lord has made, so let's rejoice and be glad in it. Today, I'm especially glad uh, to find myself healthy. Um, I'll I tell you what, uh, our administrative assistant, Naomi, um, she contracted the virus and, uh, and was, has been very sick this week. And uh, I've been tested a couple times this week. Uh, I went and did the, the two-day test, and they take a little thin uh, Q-tip, and they, they put it up each side of your nostril, and they, they test it that way. And then I did the two-hour rapid test on Friday, and what they do with that is they take the world's largest Q-tip and see if they can penetrate your skull. And it was, it was awful. It was the worst violation I've been violated in a long time, but uh, both of my tests were negative, uh, so praise God for that. Um, listen, yesterday we had the opportunity to, uh, to celebrate the life of Dr. Uh, George Mall. And uh, it was a fantastic uh, service of remembrance. His, his wife spoke at it. His uh, two daughters spoke at it. Uh, Reverend Blaha shared the gospel. Um, I know that there are a lot of you who are at home and couldn't be there yesterday. I know there's a lot of you, uh, most of you who are at home and cannot be here uh, on the Lord's Day. But we just tell you, uh, we're glad you're worshiping with us. Um, one of the ways that we believe in being called to worship 
is by professing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's really important for us, especially to do not just individually, but as a group, we as a church, we profess our faith in Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is with the Apostles' Creed, by, uh, by proclaiming the faith together. And so I'm going to invite everyone who's able to stand now. <coughs> Excuse me. And this creed begins with this question. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And please be seated. At this moment in our worship, we are going to just enjoy and celebrate the ministry of music. Where my Savior died Down here for cleansing from sin I cried There to my heart was the blood applied Glory to his name Glory to his name Glory to his name There to my heart was the blood applied so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where he took me in. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood of precious fountain that saves from sin. I am so glad I have entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. fountain so rich and sweet cast thou for soul at the Savior's feet plunge in today and be made complete glory to his name glory to his name glory to his name there to my heart was the blood of life glory
the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we draw before you in the name of him who is the image of the divine invisibility made visible in flesh and blood that we might be saved. We confess that in our unbelief we love that which does not glorify your Son nor satisfy our souls. You have begun a good work in us, and you alone can continue it and complete it. Like spiritual children, we long for spiritual food, that we may grow in the grace you freely give. Make us to distinguish between the mere form of godliness and its power between life that perishes and life that endures, between guile and truth, between hypocrisy and faith, that, a faith that will stand in your presence. Lord, grace us to live the time you have granted us, not for the love of this world, but for the will of God. Let us be diligent in prayer, true in our love for one another, hungry for the word made flesh and the word inscripted. Let our speech be marked as the oracles of God and our service as by the strength that a holy God supplies. All this that in everything you may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Father, remember now our worship and giving. By it we confess that you give all of us the power to make wealth. And we ask this in the name of him who is the head of his church, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lost are saved, find their way at the sound. Your great name, 
Yo 
name. 
I don't know if you could tell by watching at home, but uh, there were a lot of us here who were pretending like we weren't singing, and, uh, and a lot of head shaking, and uh, it's funny, uh, I remember uh, a, a season when we sang this song pre-corona, and uh, we had the stage full, and every chair back here was where we had the, the contemporary choir and the traditional choir singing, and it was big, and it was booming, and it was powerful, and I was moved by the worship of God's people, and I just got to say, that's coming again. Like, it's not, it's not gone forever. Like we, I think at that time we had more people in the choir than we have sitting in the pews this morning. Um, and that, that's coming again. There are a lot of people who, for good reasons, aren't in worship today. And I, I believe that this is going to pass and we're going to be in a good place. Uh, we start a new sermon series today. It's on this idea of misunderstood doctrines. I know uh, that many of you are familiar with Ligonier Ministries, uh, ministry of, uh, of R.C. Sproul. In 2008, Ligonier Ministries set out to do a survey of the theological beliefs of evangelical Christians. And uh, the findings of the survey were really interesting, uh, a lot of things we could learn. One of the things we noticed is that Christians, by and large, could affirm uh, doctrine and good doctrine when they read it. So like if, if a Christian was to read a good doctrine, they had the ability to go, yep, that's true. Uh, for instance, the survey asked evangelicals to either agree or disagree with some of the following statements. So play, play along at home, just in your minds while you're watching is this next statement true? God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus. Is this true? 91% of evangelicals rightly identified this as being true, right? So it's true. We believe, like, like we're not saved based on our own righteousness. We, we, we say based on our faith in Jesus, and so it seems that evangelicals had the ability to identify rightly good theology and to affirm it. Go like, that's true, I believe that, I affirm that. Uh, but unfortunately, what the survey showed is that if you were to say the exact opposite thing, the exact same group of people, those people were actually uh, likely to agree with the exact opposite statement too. So uh, while 91% of, of evangelicals agreed with that la last statement, that same group of people, 39% of them agreed with the following statement. My good deeds help me get into heaven. You, you understand what I'm saying here is this, is, is that sometimes when people say Christian things, they can even be opposite, and Christians will go, oh yeah, that's good, that's true, that's good, that's true. So on the one hand, you've got people saying that it's only through faith in Jesus on this survey, and the same people in the next question on the survey will go, and yes, my good works help me get into heaven. Um, Christians struggle with identifying bad theology. We're good at identifying good theology, but we're bad at identifying bad theology. Uh, for instance, from this survey, 46% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, here's the statement, God will always reward true faith with material blessings in this life. 46%, almost 50% of the people believe that God's reward for your faith is that you would become rich or be blessed with materials. That's almost half of Christians who think that God rewards our morality or our faithfulness with riches. That, my friends, is bad theology. 21% of evangelicals will affirm the statement that the Holy Spirit can tell them to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. 
let that sink in for a second. 21% of people surveyed who are evangelicals believe that it's possible that the Holy Spirit might come in and tell them to do something in which the Bible forbids them to do. Those same people who, who, who would say that, those same people, 100% of them would say that the Bible is the highest authority that they have to believe in. So the Bible is the highest authority they have to believe in, but they believe that the Holy Spirit might ask them to do something that is not in the Bible. That's bad theology. Listen, I know when you go to church, you want to be inspired. I know you want to be reminded uh, not to sin. I know that you want to be reminded to trust in Jesus and to hear the gospel. And I wholeheartedly agree. But I want to suggest to you that there must be a time and there must be a place where we instruct people in proper biblical doctrine. Evangelicals, uh, by and large, cannot sniff out bad teaching. So today we begin a new sermon series entitled Misunderstood Doctrines. And, and listen, I think this is going to be a, actually a, a tough sermon series to preach through. And I think it's going to be quite a challenge for those of you who are listening. Over the next seven weeks, I want to look at seven commonly misunderstood doctrines in the church. Seven concepts that are not trivial, but are rather very important spiritual matters in the life of every believer. Today I want to start off uh, this series with the examination of the doctrine of sola scriptura. For those of you who are familiar with church history, you will recognize sola scriptura as being one of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola scriptura is actually a Latin phrase. Here's what it means. It means scripture alone. And it's one of five similar phrases which summarize the convictions of the Reformation. The other four phrases that you probably heard before, they, they go something like this, sola gratia. What do you think that means? Grace alone. Uh, it describes how we come to be justified. We are saved by grace alone, not by works that no man can boast. So we've got sola scriptura, scripture alone. We've got sola gratia, which is grace alone. The next one is sola fide. What do you think that one means? Faith alone. Uh, we are saved by faith. And it works together with, with the one that we read just before. It works with sola gratia. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith. You, 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 this is good theology. You've heard this your whole life. You're, so, uh, sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fides, faith alone. We're saved by grace through faith. And the next one, you're going to know this one too. Solus Christus. Christ alone. And, the, and these still are working together. Let me show you how. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? And so the next one is this one. Soli Deo Gloria. The glory of God alone. And here's how it works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? For the glory of God alone. Sola Deo Gloria. Today I want to study the last of these uh, sola statements, which would be sola scriptura. It's a Latin for scripture alone, one of the key doctrines of the church, a rallying cry of the Reformation, Scripture alone is our final sufficient authority. That's really what this doctrine means, that, that Scripture alone is our final sufficient authority. In a world that's full of like half-truths and, and opinions and, and fake news, in a world where 
where truth is really elusive. It's hard to find truth anymore, especially you watch this news station, well, you're going to believe their truth, or you're going to watch this news station and believe their truth. It's hard to find truth anywhere. The doctrine of sola scriptura teaches the Christian that no matter what every voice in the world is yelling, our only final authority is found in Scripture alone. And there, there are a few ways Christians have understood this doctrine historically. And there are a few ways that Christians misunderstand it today. And before we go much further, I want to turn to God's infallible and inerrant word and seek some wisdom. Before we stand up and, and have our, uh, our reading together, I want to get some kind of some uh, context for what we're going to read together by looking at what Paul is instructing his young disciple Timothy to do. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy when Timothy was ministering in, in Ephesus. And Paul encourages Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3. He's basically telling Paul, he's like, there are some people there, and you need to charge certain persons in, in the congregation there not to teach any other doctrine. And what Paul begins to expose is that he's concerned with the doctrine of the church and what certain people are teaching. Um, it's interesting because a lot of us kind of tend to take this attitude that, that maybe the Bible isn't concerned with doctrine or maybe being concerned in doctrine is missing the boat somehow. But Paul is actually very much concerned with doctrine as he talks to Timothy and he tells him what to teach. Um, and, and, and probably because what we believe about God really reflects uh, the health of our soul and our salvation. Uh, and so Paul charged Timothy to make sure that, that a certain person, as Scripture says, in Ephesus was not instructed uh, or who, that a certain person in Ephesus was instructed not to teach false doctrine. Now, a question you might ask is, uh, what kind of false doctrines is Paul worried about? What, what kind of false doctrines are being taught in Ephesus at this time? And we could look at a few clues uh, to figure out maybe what he was talking about there. One of those clues could be 2 Timothy 2.18. And this is what Paul is addressing with Timothy. He says, There are some who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So apparently there were some people who were teaching in the church. They came and they'd be like, hey, no, Jesus came back already. He resurrected. He took a bunch of people with him. Like, it's all, you missed it. You missed the resurrection. And, and so you've got all these people who are like, well, what, what for us now that the resurrection's happened? What do we do? Another place to find uh, Paul instructing Timothy on this false doctrine would be 1 Timothy uh, four three through five and, and Paul tells Timothy some people are, are trying to mislead the church by and it, it basically there's a lot there but the, the part I want to cue in is by forbidding marriage and acquired abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving so so Paul's seeing this as bad teaching he's trying to correct it and and honestly there's a lot of these if we read uh, the two letters to Timothy there we could read find a lot of these places where Paul is interested in Timothy being on guard against bad theology and bad doctrine uh, it, that brings us to our text for the day. Our text for the day is going to be 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17. If you are able to do so, I want to invite you to stand now. We're going to stand as the Word of God is read. It's our tradition. It's the way we, uh, we honor the Word of God. And it's kind of the way we position our bodies and our hearts to hear it well. Uh, before we read it together, let's, uh, let's have a word of, of prayer. Actually, I'm, I'm going to give you a little time to be silent before the Lord. And then I'm going to pray for us. Father, we do come to your word, and it's our desire to um, 
have our lives match up with your word and have your Holy Spirit uh, quicken our hearts to receive it well. So, Father, we come to your word. May it, may it do your work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You now the word of the Lord, uh, 2 Timothy 3, beginning in the 12th verse. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Church, the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So there's a, a sobering warning that comes from Paul as he's talking to his disciple Timothy. And Paul tells Timothy, listen, you're going you're gonna to be persecuted. And you're going to face imposters. And those imposters are going to deceive and be deceived. And Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. And what he is talking about is quite clearly in context, the Bible. Paul is saying uh, that with all the competing truth claims, uh, the place that you find absolute truth, young Timothy, is in the Word of God. And here's how Paul's going to say it, 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, from childhood, you've been equated with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the Bible. And this next part is the kicker. You just, this is really important. It, it kind of everything hinges on these next few words. 1 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God. That's an amazing statement. The entirety of the Bible is breathed out by God. Now, in the Old Testament, the word for breathe is ruha. And in the New Testament, it's pneuma. And in both the Hebrew and the Greek, this word for, for breath share, is the same word that you would have for spirit or for wind. And so there's a really link between God breathing his breath into Scripture and the same word being spirit. So there's a sense in which God is breathing his breath, his spirit, his being into Scripture. What makes the Bible the absolute truth source is that it is breathed out by God and filled with his spirit. How can what God breathes out be mistaken? How can what God breathes out be outdated or irrelevant? And so we need to say a few things, and this is a kind of a place that if this was a, a, a lecture, a class, and you were going to be tested on it, uh, the, the teacher would say, okay, you need to remember and write down these two words. We're going to talk about two words that describe Scripture that allow us to say sola scriptura. These are two very important words. They're thrown around in Christian uh, circles, and they mean similar but different things, but it's important that we say them about Scripture the first term that we're going to talk about in regards to Scripture 
is Scripture's infallibility. You ever heard that word before? That we say that Scripture is infallible. Uh, what do we mean when we say infallible? Well, it means that if you put your trust in the Word of God, it will not fail you, right? That Scripture cannot fail you. It will point you towards the gospel and a saving grace through faith in Jesus, and the Bible alone is a reliable source for that. It's infallible. It will not fail you. The second word is very, it's similar. It's different. We say that the Bible is inerrant. You ever heard that word before? Inerrant? We talk about inerrancy of the Bible. What does the word inerrant mean? Well, it means that there is no errors. There are no errors in Scripture. It has no errors in regards to facts. It does not contradict itself. It's 100% true and reliable. And therefore, the Bible is the one source that you can trust to have no errors. Uh, so we say it's infallible being that it won't fail you. It's inerrant being that it has no errors. And that's why we really have this, this ability to say about Scripture alone that, that we trust in sola scriptura. Now listen, that being said, let me tell you about myself. I, uh, I guarantee that I will make mistakes. And I'm sure that I've said some things from this pulpit that are wrong. I'm sure I've messed up some theological statements just by being sloppy, and maybe even I've misrepresented God. And, and listen, I'm going to have to work that out with fear and trembling myself, but I'm not perfect. I'm certainly not infallible. I will fail you, and I'm certainly not inerrant. I will make errors. And your session here at the church, which is made up of, of faithful elders, good, good men, they also at times may make errors. They're going to make decisions which are well-intended, and yet those decisions are going to turn out to be the wrong decisions, and the elders could let you down. They could fail you. They could be wrong. Your favorite theologian, I don't, I don't know who you like to read. Do you, do you like uh, Timothy Keller, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur? I'm not sure who you like to read, but, but your favorite theologian or your author or your favorite church father, they can get things wrong. They're going to get things wrong. Uh, but not so with Scripture. It, it doesn't work that way. Scripture is the one place that is infallible and inerrant, and it has nothing to do with who is actually teaching it or saying it. Instead, it has everything to do with who breathed it out. God breathed it out. Therefore, it's inerrant. And this was, this was all at the heart of the Reformation. And, and as I talk about the Reformation for those of you who aren't studying that, I'm talking about that time specifically in history where the church was reformed, where there were a lot of things going on in the church that weren't good. There was a man uh, by the name of Martin Luther. Uh, Luther uh, was a brilliant man. He, he was a, a man of, of convictions, but he was also just a man of just kind of like brilliant intellect. Luther was smart. Uh, he he outstudied his peers as well as being superior to them intellectually. And, and if you really were to summarize Luther, you'd say he was a Catholic who got hyper-focused on reading the Bible, okay? And specifically, being the academic that he was, he, he focused on learning the original languages of the Bible. And so he would study the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and he would study the New Testament in the Greek, and he would supplement all that by reading the Vulgate, which is the Latin version of the Bible. And what, Le what Luther read and learned by reading the Bible it just didn't seem to jive and to agree with what he saw in the teaching of the Pope. And it didn't seem to agree with what he saw in the teachings of the councils 
and with the actions of the Catholic Church. Now we can talk a lot about that later. Luther began to raise his voice to the concerns he saw. He saw a lot of things going on. He began to speak up against them, basically calling into question what he saw with what Scripture says. And uh, Luther was threatened, and he was dragged into courts. And you've got to understand that the people who came before Luther, who had similar questions, uh, John Huss, for instance, was burnt at the stake. And there was a lot of danger for, for Luther. And there were really a lot of issues of disagreement between Luther and Scripture and the teachings of the Catholic Church. But the major issue at hand was this. All right, I just want to get the major issue at hand. Who has the final authority to speak for God? Understand? Who has the final authority to speak for God? It's kind of like military rank. Think about it like that. Think about it like military rank. Who is the highest ranking officer when it comes to making a ruling about God's will? Who has that final authority? Luther was in trouble because what he was saying was that Scripture alone, all by itself, was the final authority. And the Catholic Church at that time believed that the Pope, this is interesting, this is where those two words come in. Scripture, or, uh, the Catholic Church at that time believed that the Pope was also infallible and inerrant. So they believed that the Pope, uh, when, uh, when speaking ex uh, cathedra, which is Latin for from the seat, or basically where they say when the Pope was acting as the vicar of the Christ of the vicar of Christ on earth, when, when he was acting in his official duties, that the, the Pope could not fail you, that he was infallible, and the Pope could not err, that he was inerrant. And they believed that the church councils that would kind of meet together and have some authority, that they could also speak with that same kind of rank and authority. What Luther realized was that if the word of the Pope and the word of these councils was exactly the same, had the same rank and authority as the, as the very word of God. There could never, ever be reform, and the word of God would never reign true. One of the ways that the Pope would exercise his authority over the scriptures, or, or one of the ways the Pope would try to outrank the scriptures, was to claim to have an exclusive right to interpret the scriptures. The Pope would say, uh, the scriptures mean what I say that they mean. And in one of Luther's writings, it was called to the Christian nobility of the German people. Luther denied that the church held a monopoly on the proper interpretation of scripture. He would say, listen, it's not just for the Pope. The scriptures would be read by all people. And if you remember the story of Luther, a lot of what he did after being in trouble and running away and hiding was to translate the Bible into German. So that the common people could read the word of God. Beforehand, you had to be highly educated. You had to be able to read that Vulgate in Latin. Or you had to be able to read the Old Testament in Hebrew or the New Testament in Greek. But when he put it in German, it gave the interpretation of Scripture to all the people. And it began to exercise authority that wasn't there beforehand. Now the church had to deal with the authority of Scripture all of a sudden because it was available to the people. Luther rejected the idea that the Pope was infallible. He, he claimed that the Pope must answer to Scripture because it was Scripture alone that was the only sufficient final authority which had been breathed out by God. We must, all of us, every one of us, answer to Scripture. It is always our final authority, and no man, no denomination, no council, no leader has the authority to override the Word of God. I mean, there are times 
when someone has said to me, do you really uh, believe that about Scripture? And what they're, what they're saying is, wouldn't it be easier for you if you let that part of it go? And what I've had to tell them is, I don't have the authority to let an inch of Scripture go. Because it's the Word of God, and I have no authority, no rank in this matter. Okay, but here's where this doctrine gets misunderstood. Because that's really what this sermon series is about. It's about misunderstanding these doctrines. Some people think that when, when we talk about sola scriptura, what we mean is that scripture is the only authority in the church. And this is where the words matter a little bit. It, that's simply not true. It's not the only authority of the church. What we said is that scripture was the only infallible final authority in church. It's the only high-ranking, highest-tier authority in the church. There are other spiritual authorities in the church. And the Bible describes those spiritual authorities. If the Bible is our final authority, we should care what the Bible says about other authorities. And so what the Bible says about other authorities is this. 1 Peter 5.5 5, You who are young, be subject to the elders. Obviously, there is some authority in elders. Hebrews 13.7 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they will keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. And the context of Hebrews 13 is the church and church leaders. So this idea that you should obey the church leaders and submit to them, that, that, that there is some thought in that. And Luther wouldn't have had a problem with this. Luther wouldn't have had a problem with the idea that he was supposed to subject himself to cardinals and to, to the pope and, and that they had a sense of authority. I think what really, really bothered Luther was when these rulers began to rule with the authority that was above Scripture. Where else do we see authority in the church today? What about the creeds and the confessions? You know, we read together the Apostles' Creed as a, as a statement of our faith. Uh, do they have any authority? Well, yeah, they, they have some authority. Um, what about the Westminster Confession of Faith? Does it have any authority? Well, yeah, it's, it's got some authority. These are faithful works of theology written by wise people who were trying to explain the Scriptures well to us and help us understand them. And these writings have value for the Christians. However, the creeds, the confessions, they're not infallible. They're not inerrant. They're not our final authority. Sola Scriptura is. Uh, so some people misunderstand the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, and they think that it means that there are no authorities in the church other than Scripture. And the term for that is not really Sola Scriptura anymore. It's actually moved to another Latin term. This is the error of, of like when you go too far that way. It's called uh, Nuda Scripture. And Nuda Scripture describes an error in theology uh, when people believe that they should have nothing to read, uh, no, uh, no, nothing to testify about goodness except for the Bible. So they avoid reading. So, so like this person, maybe you've been around them, they go, you go, what have you been reading lately? Or what, what commentaries do you read when you preach? And that person would say, I don't read commentaries when I preach because I don't want anything to interfere with me hearing the word of God. And you go, well, have you ever read Calvin? They go, no, no, I don't want Calvin getting in here. If, you know, have, have you read Martin Luther? Well, I don't want Martin Luther getting in here. I want to be able to go to scripture and when I read it, to have an uninterrupted understanding of the word of God. And that's actually, we would call that new to scripture. And, and I believe that, th that that is kind of an, an, a stretch. They find no value from the instructions of the voices from the past. Uh, they don't want to read any books about the Bible. They're too good for that. And if you talk to them, they'll say, after all, sola scriptura means scripture 
alone. But I want to tell you, however, that's not what the reformers taught. That's not what they believed. Alexander Campbell was, was a Scotch-Irish immigrant. And uh, once he came to America, he became a pastor and a leader. Alexander Campbell. I don't know if you've heard of him before. He participated in something known as the Restoration Movement. Uh, and he's famous for being a, a, a new to Scripture believer. And he founded many denominations, mainly non-denominational churches, uh, when he came over here. If you're familiar with the Disciples of Christ Church, that's actually the church I was born and raised in. He, he was one to have, have founded that denomination. And if you know anything about the Disciples of Christ, one of their main statements is, no creeds but Christ. And, and here's what, what Campbell said. He said, I, I've, I've endeavored to read the Scriptures as though, as though no one else had read them before me. And I am as much on my guard against reading them today through the medium of my own views yesterday or a week ago as I am against being influenced by any foreign name, authority, or system whatsoever. Campbell's goal was to read Scripture alone without any voices from yesterday or today. He didn't want anything else influencing what he read in Scripture his goal was to avoid the wickedness of influences of tradition, but in doing so, <laughs> who does he put all of his trust in? Himself. So he becomes this isolationist. He begins to read Scripture in a vacuum and go, like, I'll get it. I don't need what everybody else has ever heard about Scripture. There's no value in, in the community of reading that together. And listen, I want to tell you this. As, as I understand Scripture, it's meant to be read in community. It's meant to be read in the church, all of us together. It's meant to be read with old dusty books beside it, written by old men who have read the Bible and are talking about in their books what the Bible says. Right? It, have you heard Proverbs as it says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another? There's some value that comes from that. So, sola scriptura does not mean that we only read the Bible and nothing else. And sola scriptura doesn't mean that there are no other uh, authorities in our life in the church. There's elders, there's leaders, there's creeds, there's confessions. Now, none of them are final authorities. So in conclusion, let's talk about what does sola scriptura, sola scriptura actually mean? Well, it means scripture alone. Okay, well, scripture alone what? Well, scripture alone is to be your final authority. It is to be the highest rank of any authority in your life. Nowhere should a pastor or an elder or a teacher or this, even the Holy Spirit contradict the Word of God. Because God is not divided. And nowhere does God change his mind on what he put in the Bible. If, if you think, it's like for instance, if you think the Holy Spirit's calling you to do something, one way to make sure that it is the Holy Spirit is to ask, is this biblical? And if, if that feeling that you have that you think might be the Holy Spirit is asking you to do something that is not biblical, it is not the Holy Spirit. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is your sufficient authority. It provides you with all the truth you need to follow after Jesus. Scripture alone is God's inspired word. It's breathed out by God. It's infallible. It will not fail you. It is inerrant. It is without error. This has been our first study of misunderstood doctrines, the study of sola scriptura. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone. And I pray that you will put your faith in Christ alone and receive the merits of his grace for the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Your word which is breathed out for our benefit. In which you have revealed uh, to us who you are as creator. You have revealed to us your son, Christ Jesus, as Lord. God, I thank you that by breathing yourself into this scripture, that it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is sufficient. Everything that we need to come to a saving faith in Jesus is in there. And so when it comes to finding truth in this world, we find that truth in scripture alone. We pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the church said, amen. Let's enjoy the ministry of music one more time. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior, shall prevail standing on the promises of God standing 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 on the promises of God my Savior standing standing I'm standing on the promises of God standing on the promises of Christ the Lord to him eternal thrill of strong cord, overcoming daily by the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing. At the time of, of the Reformation, one of the big things that happened there was uh, there was a, a push to build a basilica called St. Peter's Basilica. It was, it was going to be a beautiful church, and the, and the Pope really wanted it to be built under his watch. He kind of was going to take pride in it. And the way he decided to raise money was he, he got an indulgence preacher by the name of Tetzel. And, and, and Tetzel was charged to go and to sell an indulgence to anyone. And basically, if you had an indulgence, it was a guarantee uh, that, that you could get out of uh, purgatory immediately after you died. And, you know, the, the belief at the time was that sometimes you have to spend thousands of years in purgatory before you can go to heaven. And so the Pope authorizes this. He says, hey, listen, go, uh, yeah, go and sell those indulgences and, and let people think. And, and so you ask your question, why did, why did Luther willing to risk his life over theology? That's because there was a mom somewhere 
in the midst of all this, who wanted to make sure that her daughter was saved. And she took some money and purchased an indulgence and said, look, I have, I have I've made sure that my daughter is going to heaven. And Luther said, that is not the way. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Theology matters. What we believe matters because it has to do with the salvation of people. We talked about the doctrine of sola scriptura today. It is our only final authority, the only infallible and inerrant word of God. Take it with you. As you go, take it with you, the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus' Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's sing one more time. Standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Lakeside, it was wonderful to worship with you. Until next week, God bless. 